This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening. Welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Today we have the immense pleasure of being joined by Mike Bancolo, the B team. Mike, how are we? Yeah, it's good to have the B team reunited after so long. I'm, I'm very well, Aaron. Hope you're well. I'm good, mate. It's the first one of 2024. Uh, coming up later tonight, there's been a bust up at Talk TV and a guest was booted off air for their pro-Palestinian views. Experts are saying that the pension age needs to be increased to 71. Just hold off on that for a few decades. Uh, And McDonald's have admitted a hit to their sales after a boycott related to the war in Gaza. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. A general election is months away, and the Conservative Party is predicted to suffer historic losses. But what have the Tories decided is necessary? Well, apparently it's to launch yet another right-wing splinter group. Prominent right-wing Tory MPs met in London today to launch popular conservatism, and they're led by this woman. Now, Britain is full of secret conservatives, people who agree with us but don't want to admit it because they think it's not acceptable in their place of work, it's not acceptable at their school. We've been in power for 100 of the last 150 years, but apparently there's not many of us out there. There's lots of secret conservatives, but not many in public. Don't tell anyone. I voted conservative. Anyhow, uh, the most disastrous conservative prime minister in recent history, possibly ever, thinks she has the answer to why people are too embarrassed to admit they're a Tory. So what's popular conservatism all about? Well, on policy, you'll hear some familiar beats, such as leaving the ECHR, getting tougher on asylum seekers, binning net zero, and setting fire to business regulations. But the group claims that their primary aim is, quote, giving ordinary people, taxpayers, and voters their freedom back. That suggests someone took it away in the first place. But who is Liz Truss again? I believe the fundamental issue is that for years and years and years, and I think it goes back two decades, conservatives have not taken on the left-wing extremists. Now, these people have repurposed themselves. They don't admit they're socialists or communists anymore. They say they're environmentalists. They say that they're in favour of helping people across all communities. They are in favour of supporting LGBT people or groups of ethnic minorities. So they no longer admit that they are collectivists, but that is what their ideology is about. It's all about taking power away from people and families and giving power to the state or unaccountable bodies. How is this woman Prime Minister, by the way? She can barely complete a sentence. She's breathless. She's making no sense. Nobody says they're a socialist anymore. Well, I do. I wrote a book about it. Uh, And apparently, the left, which hasn't had any power in this country since the 1970s, is secretly pulling all the levers of influence. Uh, Trust went on to argue against regulation for landlords and business. Uh, And of course, she criticised environmental policies and lefty lawyers. It's all very much a routine we've never heard before. Uh, Also speaking was Tory MP and GB News host Jacob Rees-Mogg, who brought up some familiar targets. The judges are getting it wrong. They are tied in to this international elite. They are plugged in 
to the European Convention on Human Rights. Look at that dreadful Rwanda judgment. Why do I say it was dreadful? Well, a British court preferred evidence from the High Commissioner, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, than from His Majesty's government. The same High Commissioner for Refugees that sends people to Rwanda itself. And when you look at the judgment of the Supreme Court, it is full of references to a foreign organization overriding His Majesty's government. Since when has that been the way that we are governed? It is all part of this international Davos man approach that is being rejected not just in this country, but globally. Jacob Rees-Mogg there criticising global finance interests, certainly original. Rees-Mogg was later accosted by Politics Joe outside the event, where he said this. Mr. Rees-Mogg, that was a bit embarrassing, wasn't it? That was delightful. No, I think Steve is... Uh... Sorry, I mean, I mean the conference, not Steve Bray. No, the conference was marvellous. I, I, I think, does, it, does the public really want to hear about wokeism, about communism? The public is very interested in hearing these things. They're not particularly interested in lefty outfits, I guess. <laughs> I disagree with you there, Mr. Rees-Mogg. Well, that doesn't particularly surprise me. No. You would professionally. I think they are interested in us. We get decent numbers here at Navarra Media. We're going to hit a million subscribers this month, so I'd take offence to that. Sir Jacob. Other speakers at the event included Lee Anderson, and there was a moment in his speech where, believe it or not, he made a pretty good point. When you actually ask the question, um, do you want to leave the planet in a better place than, than when you arrived here, they, they all say yes, of course we do, because I think all of us are environmentalists, we all love our planet, we're guardians of, our, in the short period of time that we're here, we are guardians of the planet, and we want to make sure that when we, when we leave this place, it's in a good state for our children and our grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren because that should be our job. Now I think to myself, how many, as politicians in that place over there, Parliament, how many MPs and Lords and whoever lie awake at night worrying about their next gas bill or their electric bill or have they got 20 quid to put in the van to get to work the following day? How many literally over there worry about that? And then how many people, think about how many people in Ashfield lie awake at night thinking about worrying whether or not we'll get to net zero in 2050. I'll tell you what, <laughs> it's not many, it's not many at all. Um, I suspect the figure in both instances is pretty similar, it's fairly low. That's unless you're an MP that wants a job in green energy after a life in politics. <laughs> but we won't go there. <laughs> what my constituents do worry about is their fuel bills. They worry um, about the cost of gas, the cost of electric, and like I say, from the cars, they genuinely worry about that. They do not chase me down the street saying, Lee, I'm not voting for you this next time because you're not sorted out carbon emissions. What they do say is, I'm struggling to vote for you next time because you're not sorted out our fuel bills. They are astronomical. It's absolutely, it's a shocker. Look, let me say it. You won't hear this very often. Lee Anderson is right. People care about the environment. But their energy bills aren't something that can they, they can just put off. You know, you have to pay them every month. Of course, rather than take responsibility for mismanaging the economy, for higher water bills because of privatisation, higher gas bills, because unlike the French, we didn't build lots of nuclear power stations, the Tories would rather blame environmentalists for our lack of energy security. How convenient. He's also right about COP. As we saw last year, the world's largest climate change conference has been overrun by lobbyists for corporate interests who are slowing environmental progress down. I agree. 
none of this is doing very much for your average family or for median living standards. But if Anderson's really worried about ordinary people, what's he doing with this lot? Now, the man behind popular conservatism is Mark Littlewood, former director of the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA, one of the most secretive think tanks in Britain. And while the IEA doesn't like to talk about where it gets its money from, it's known to have received funds from the oil industry as well as tobacco and alcohol. Those are all sectors desperate for deregulation and tax cuts to enhance their profits and with zero interest in the well-being of ordinary people. Mike, uh, these people think they're in touch with public sentiment around a whole host of issues, are they? Absolutely not. I think we heard all the hits in there. We saw the attack on woke judges. I think Liz Truss spoke about, you know, wokery being taught in schools, whatever that means. Um, as someone who's a school governor, by the way, I always find that one quite funny because there is no wokery being taught in schools. So I think that they're just, this kind of sums up just how out of sync these people are. And I think it's fascinating this is being called popular conservatism because you look at the people who are kind of the leading members of this group. Liz Truss, her approval ratings are minus 56. And I think Jacob Rees Mogg's around minus 40 something, right? So these are deeply unpopular politicians more broadly. And their ideas are even more unpopular. Yes, people aren't waking up at night thinking about net zero, but I think people have realized that there is a need to transition to a green economy. Now, part of the reason we haven't done that yet is because of the Conservatives and their commitment to fossil fuels. So I think they are just completely out of sync with, with both the kind of problems in Britain and both how people want us to respond to those problems. So these, this, this is essentially, to me, a group from popular politicians branding out dated ideas that no one cares for. We should call them the unpopular Conservatives, perhaps. Uh, although there is a lot of competition for that right now. Some might be wondering if this is all another effort to grab the leadership of the Conservative Party. On that point, Mark Littlewood opened the event by saying that they are, in fact, a genuine grassroots movement and that this isn't about the leadership of any political party, at least all the Conservative, conservative Party. Liz Truss stressed the same sentiments, but alongside her and Jacob Rees-Mogg, there were two other speakers who were originally due to speak. Simon Clark was one. He was boosted off the lineup after calling for Sunak to quit two weeks ago. Ranil Jaya Wardner is another. He pulled out last night and tweeted critically of his fellow panelists with some very pro Sunak talking points. So it's not exactly a smooth start for Truss's popular conservatism. And there's been another sign today that Trussite Tories are pulling in different directions. Quasi Kwarteng was Chancellor under Liz Truss's short-lived premiership until she sacked him. On the day that Truss launches her new faction, he has announced that he intends to quit as an MP and won't be standing in the next general election. To underscore what a big deal that is, here's a fact for you. His majority is over 18,000. If he's getting cold feet, that says quite a lot about just how bad any potential election defeat could be. Mike, what's the point of all of this? Have the Tories already given up on winning the next general election? Yeah, I think they have. I find all of this jostling and this internal jostling fascinating in the Conservative Party. I, I have a big prediction um, for 2024 in the Conservative Party. I think I'll be right, but I could be wrong. And my prediction is that Kemi Badenoch will be the leader of the Conservative Party by the end of the year. And I think she is of the right. I think she's part of the kind of like, maybe not quite the trust-like group, but she's definitely on the right of the party. And I think ultimately the party has in recent years been hijacked by the right. They are the most powerful, the loudest voices in the party. 
Um, and I think she'll, she'll be the leader. So I think all this internal jostling is quite interesting. I think Kwasi Kwasing stepping down is huge news. He's been an MP since 2010. He was one of their first minority ethnic MPs. He's a big figure in the party. So him stepping down is a sign that I think the party is going to see some drastic changes in the next few months, in the next few weeks. But I think the kind of big changes that the public probably want to see from them is better ideas, because some of these ideas have been espoused by Trust and by, and by um, Rhys Mogg and, and this kind of popular conservative group are so outdated and so out of sync with kind of what British people want and need. That's so well said. Um, really interesting as well what you said earlier about the poll ratings, the approval ratings of, of Liz Truss, Jacob Rees Mogg. Liz Truss less popular than Jeremy Corbyn, or more unpopular than Jeremy Corbyn ever was, and that was without years of media onslaught. And, and yet they're talking about popular conservatives. It really does defy belief. Next story. Just days after Israel began its assault on Gaza, videos like this began to appear on social media. These are two IDF soldiers eating at a branch of burger chain McDonald's in Israel. That's fast food for you. And there's a good chance they got that meal for free. Israeli franchises of the company announced they were donating 4,000 meals a day to Israeli soldiers and civilians and giving a 50% discount to soldiers who came to their restaurants. A reminder. This was at the same time that Israel was beginning to starve Palestinians in Gaza, a strategy that would lead to humanitarian catastrophe in the Strip. The news of McDonald's support for the IDF kicked off protests and boycotts around the world. In some countries like Pakistan, Malaysia and Kuwait, sales were so badly hit that franchises were forced to put out statements distancing themselves from their parent company. And now the corporation has revealed the deep, economic impact that boycotts have had on their bottom line. McDonald's has missed its quarterly sales targets for the first time in four years, with branches in Asia hit particularly hard. The sales figures in question are for the fourth quarter of 2023. Now, in the third quarter of 2023, the company posted 8.8% growth in sales globally. Not bad. In the last quarter, however, that was down to just 4%, well below the annual average. For comparison, if you go back just a year, McDonald's sales growth was around 13% for the same period of 2022. So that's a very dramatic drop. And by the way, that's sales. That's not profit. We don't know what the score is in regard to that. The effect of the boycott was most strongly felt in its Asian and Middle Eastern markets, where growth in sales was just 0.7% far below the 5.5% growth that had been projected. Remember, these are major growth markets compared to places like Europe and North America, which are broadly saturated, mature. In these kinds of places, you're expecting more customers, more revenues, and more profits, and that seems to now not be happening. So it's not surprising that dismal performance also affected the corporation's stock price. McDonald's share price dropped nearly 4% on Monday evening as a result of that announcement. Not existential, obviously, but a clear signal that boycotts are having an impact. And McDonald's isn't the only Western corporation to face criticism around the war in Gaza. US-based coffee chain Starbucks has also been hit by protests, staff walkouts and boycotts after the company sued its workers' union when they published a post in support of Palestine. It too has revised its sale growth forecasts, telling investors at the end of January that there was, quote, a significant impact on traffic and sales in the Middle East due to the Israel-Hamas conflict. 
Sales also slowed in the US, which is the largest market for Starbucks, and that was from November. It should be said, however, that the country had a very good first six months of 2023, but that final quarter was the fly in the ointment. So, in brief, we're not saying Starbucks is on the ropes, that it's over, that it's finished, that it's cancelled, that it's nearing bankruptcy, but clearly boycotts have had some kind of impact on the bottom line of these major global brands. Mike, this looks really substantial for me, particularly the McDonald's statistics, because as I said, these are big growth markets and you need to grow in growth markets. And I think as well in the background to all of this, of course, is both of these businesses, I believe, pulled out of Russia in the last two years. So all of a sudden, you know, we talk in the abstract about deglobalization, about the sort of political economic overhead of deglobalization, but this is starting to look now very real for some of the world's major brands. Absolutely. And I think it shows that boycotts work. Look, boycotts are so important for, for two reasons, I think. I think firstly, for kind of moral reasons, it's, it's a show of solidarity for those in, in, in Gaza who are suffering at the moment. So it's a real show of solidarity for them. I think we also raise awareness for the cause, right? That's why this movement has been such a big thing. I think it's been re-energised, this movement, in recent months. It's been quite nice to see the kind of boycott movements re-energised in this way. And, and I think that raising awareness point is really, really important because, you know, as, as we, people kind of see that the links these companies have with, with the Israeli states, you know, we, we begin to interrogate this, this, these relationships and, and what's going on. That's all really, really powerful. And I think it's especially powerful in a kind of era of corporate social responsibility, right? Companies care about their PR. We saw this at a height of kind of Black Lives Matter movements where you know, so many companies came out and apologised for their kind of current and historical um, failings. And I think we, we, we might see something similar here where I think the key thing for us is the kind of liberal consensus shifting. Because at the moment, yes, this is affecting McDonald's kind of like pockets. But because the liberal consensus is very much like pro-Israel and, and you know, it's like, yes, we're really sad you know, about what's happening in Gaza, but Israel's right to defend itself. That's generally sort of rhetoric. Because that's sort of rhetoric, there won't be this kind of like reconciliation or this idea that they're going to pull out of Israel. Rather, there's just going to be like more of the same and hope this passes. So I do think that liberal consensus needs to shift. But I do think what we have seen is boycotts do work, right? They raise awareness, is the first thing. And they're a good show of solidarity. So here's some more boycotts. They do work. They do work. Um, I think as well, there's a different conversation about sanctions. I'm often quite critical, skeptical about sanctions, particularly on poorer countries by wealthier ones. I mean, Israel's not that, but that's my view on them. I think consumer boycotts is wholly uh, different. And like you say, people are told time after time, it won't work, it'll fail. You're hearing it here on Navarro Media. We're looking at the numbers. These are two of the world's biggest brands. They're really suffering. Next story. Throughout the second half of the 20th century, there was a pretty basic rule about working life in Britain. Give us around 45 years of your labour, then you can settle into a reasonably comfortable retirement with the state providing a basic level of comfort and taking care of your essential needs. Between 1940 and 2010, that was how things worked. Men got a state pension at 65, women at 60, uh, with both men and women going up to 66 by 2020. It was a long-standing and fundamental feature of the social economic contract. Now, of course, there was pensioner poverty, certainly, but this settlement basically worked. But new research now suggests that's all about to be ripped up. The UK state pension age will soon need to be raised to 71, according to a new report by the International Longevity Centre. There are a number of factors behind the report's analysis. 
at the moment, there are roughly five working people per retiree in the UK. We call that a dependency ratio. It relates to both young and old people. But five to one is retiree to working age. So that's five working people contributing towards the state pension, health and social care costs for that one retired person. But because people are living longer and are having fewer children, by 2050, that's set to fall to just one working person per retiree. That's obviously not sustainable without radically slashing pensions, health and social care. To stop that from happening, of course, none of us want that, you either have to increase the labour force, which explains calls for more migration, or make fewer pensioners. This report opts for the last of these solutions, but says that to do it, the state pension age would have to rise to, wait for a minute, 71, 71, for everyone born after 1970. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute, I mean, you maybe don't need to imagine, you're 54 right now in 2024, and you're just learning, you might have to work an extra five years. Doesn't sound very nice but it gets worse. If you take into account the number of people now exiting the workforce early due to health problems, the pension age would have to be set even higher than 71. Crazy. Now, you might be thinking there has to be another way. Can't we boost private pensions and burdening the state by making younger people plan more for their own retirements? That's the sort of thing Liz Trust would say after all. The short answer, however, is no because young people are getting poorer. Really interesting insight. Uh, the think tank that published the report says this. Younger people don't have the financial assets their parents and grandparents did. In 2010, those under 40 held just £7.53 of every £100 of wealth. Over the past decade, this has fallen significantly to only £3.98. The UK's 14 million Gen Xers, that's people who are older than millennials but younger than boomers, save just £200 into their pension pots each month on average. One third of this group are at high risk of retiring on insufficient income. One third. By 2046, around one in eight people aged 65 and over will be renting their home. The good old housing crisis again. It seems to be everywhere, doesn't it? Uh, that statistic showing that less than £4 out of every 100 is in the hands of under 40s is shocking, particularly given that's around half of what it was just 13 years ago. Under 40s, okay? Not university students, not recent graduates, people who are 40 years old and younger. That's the median age in this country. It's around 40, 41. Mike, I'm actually really glad we could talk to you about this because you're an academic. You teach young people all the time, people in their early 20s. What's your sense on this stuff with them? Do they just presume they're not going to get a pension? Because that seems to be the operating presumption for the people writing this report. Yeah, I, I don't know what young people's view on this is, but I think this has really made me think philosophically, like what is the purpose of life? Are we saying that people should work until they're 70-something and then just have a few years to enjoy their pension and then die? Like, Work is important, right, in some ways. You know, people enjoy their jobs and I'm sure people get some satisfaction from their jobs. But there is more to life than work. And I think people at the end of the day have a right to at some point stop working. What we're saying to people is, well, actually, you know, you can only enjoy your pensions in your, in your kind of early 70s. And in some cases, that will be a short period of time. You know, we, you look at the, the life expectancy of men in, in deprived areas, it's about 73.5. So 
that's not a long time to enjoy a pension. And I think we really have to think about what the essence of life is. Yes, work is fundamental. Work is important. I derive huge joy from my work. I love working with young people. I love being an academic. I love the research I do. I also want to enjoy my life post-retirement and, and enjoy my pension. And I think the kind of biggest problem I have with this is the essence of, of human life. There is an enjoyment, exuberance that, you know, post-retirement, we should all be able to enjoy. We should all be able to enjoy our pensions. So I, I worry about the kind of obstacles young people are, are going to have to navigate in terms of getting onto the job market, getting onto the ladder, getting onto the kind of um, housing market as well, all of these things, these big challenges. On top of that, we're going to tell them, well, actually, you can't enjoy your pension until you're 70-something. It's just bizarre to me and it feels you know it feels slightly cruel in many ways as well yeah the cruelty thing is really is really key this has made me think as well actually just responding to what you were saying there mike about um age and of course the housing crisis too the number of people who now rent who are between their sort of late 30s early 40s uh is three times higher than it was 20 years ago so when, when like i said we're not talking about young people teenagers students i think a lot of political pundits in this country think everybody below 50 is a student because they tend to be more left-wing on social economic issues because they tend to be more radical in some of their, their proposals. Uh, they're obviously not. These are people that should be starting businesses, starting families, homeowners, you name it. The bedrock of a society is people who are like 40, 45, 50, you think. Um, and I, I really do wonder, actually, with regards to the housing crisis, it's already bad, of course. I wonder, 20, 30, 40 years' time, what are we letting ourselves in for? Because, of course, with home ownership, ideally, you've bought the home by the time you retire. So you have an asset you can draw upon, but of course, you're not making further payments. Whereas a renter has this double bind of they don't have an asset and they have to continue paying their rent after 65 or after 70 or whenever they're meant to retire. And it's one of those things, you know, I think, you know, you can go down the dog and duck and talk to Baza about something like that, and you can explain that, and they'll go, that sounds bad. We should try and solve that. That sounds like a really big structural problem. I don't want to be in a society where that comes to pass, and yet the entire political class have no idea what to do about it. They don't even acknowledge it half the time, and it's terrifying. Actually, of all the things of the housing crisis, kids obviously growing up in, in bad conditions is the one that really, really angers me, but I think, actually, pension and poverty and renting is going to be something in 10, 20 years. Obviously, it's already here, but it's going to just mushroom. And the political class don't care. They don't care. I have to say, finally, as well, on this, anybody born after uh, 71, or was it 70? You know, I initially saw the headline. I thought, oh, I feel so bad for Gen Z. As a millennial, I'll be okay. Uh-uh. Right? As I said earlier, if you're in your mid-50s, this proposal would affect you. And are, are policemen meant to work to the 71? Firefighters, construction workers, um, farm workers, agricultural workers, logistic workers? I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. Nurses, 71? Really? I can do this job to 71. I, I can. I love it. Um, and I can sit down and I can talk to you guys. If you said, Aaron, you've got to go be a fisherman to 71 or a tree surgeon um, or a bricklayer, slightly harder. But of course, the people that write these reports don't think in those terms. Lirian with £4.99. Here's a few quid towards building the lefty world of Liz Truss's worst nightmares. I love that, uh, Lirian. That's very, uh, it's a very astute observation. If you want to support us directly and make Liz Truss even more triggered, 
at go2navarame.com slash support. Uh, you can give as little or as much as you like. We suggest one hour's wage a month. Help us build that new media for different politics. A people-powered media. Very different to a lot of the people driving the conversation in this country right now. Next story. Alistair Campbell was never famed for his smooth touch or understatement. Uh, the now dadcaster used to be Tony Blair's former head of communications. He's viewed by many, including myself, as participating in a series of mistruths to the British public so that this country could go to war in Iraq. Last night, Mr. Campbell appeared at an Intelligence Squared event in North London, and the Evening Standard has a write-up of a particularly eyebrow-raising moment. They write this. A young audience member came to Campbell with a conundrum. Her friends no longer want to vote for Keir Starmer because of his refusal to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. What should she do? Get off your high horse and vote Labour, he instructed with classic Campbell finesse. He explained to the idealistic questioner, well, this poor person, she's all about her friends, uh, that there's, quote, no such thing as a perfect candidate. Abraham Lincoln was not a perfect human being. Nelson Mandela was not a perfect human being. Keir Starmer and Nelson Mandela in the same sentence there. One was raised in the Eastern Cape of South Africa, the other in Oxted, Surrey, home to a Peter Rabbit Trail. One was in prison for 27 years, the other was Director of Public Prosecutions when someone went to prison for stealing a bottle of water. And isn't it strange how Campbell never said the same about Jeremy Corbyn? He's not perfect, but he'll do. Interesting. Could have been useful before 2019, Mr. Campbell. Alistair went on to explain that Starmer was probably thinking about his relationship with Joe Biden. Does he really want to use up political capital now with the Americans in a way that would make your friends feel a bit better for a few days, he added. He also said it was, quote, not true that British Muslim support for Labour has halved since the war in Gaza, as recent polls have recorded. Well, look, we can debate around polls. We know that Muslim support for Labour has fallen, and that's not up for debate by the end of the month because there's going to be a by-election in Rochdale, which has a large Muslim population. So let's see. I suspect Mr. Campbell may be proven wrong. Mike, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, I'll ask you two questions. But first of all, do you think people like Alistair Campbell just think that Palestine isn't remotely important as an issue for Labour? I understand not thinking it's important or supporting Israel. I understand that. But as somebody who's meant to be in touch with political expediency, voter preferences, that's been his job for so long, surely he recognises that this is a huge issue for a big chunk of Labour's vote. Absolutely. And I think we know that Labour's very popular amongst Muslim voters, for example. They care very deeply about the kind of issue and what's happening in Gaza, much like many of us in Britain actually care about this issue. And I think the hand dismissive tone on Gaza by Campbell sums up a lot of a liberal commentariat's view, view on the issue is just like, just grow up, guys. It's Yeah, it's an issue, but we'll get to grips with it when we're in power. You know, just vote for us and just trust us. The idea that we should just blindly trust Labour to fix the issues of this country because it's Labour and because it's like, you know, this kind of party that have always been the party that fix all of our problems, so we should just trust them again. I'm just I'm just really baffled by the dismissive tone. And especially with someone like Campbell, who, as you said, played kind of a leading role in, in leading us into the, into the war in Iraq. I think his dismissive tone on, on on Gaza is baffling. And again, 
we have to remember why people care deeply about this. We're talking about the slaughter of people in Gaza. We're talking about murder of, of thousands of people, right? That's the issue. That's why people care deeply about this. You can't dismiss that and just, oh, just vote Labour as if Labour are going to fix things. I think it is important for voters what Labour's position is on a ceasefire. It is important to know what Labour's position is on a Palestinian state. All of these things matter. These are moral issues that can tell you a lot about where a party might lead the nation once it's in government. So you know, can dismiss this and just be like, just vote for Labour. You know, it, it's baffling. No one wants the perfect position, but people want politicians that care. And I think caring about the plight of those in Gaza is important. It's an important sign that this is, these are politicians who are compassionate about the suffering of the miserable in this world. And ultimately, at the moment, Labour haven't shown that compassion. Labour haven't shown that empathy with those in Gaza. And they've been dismissive of those who raise concerns about, you know, ceasefires and, and other things. There's two layers here, like I say. Anybody with a brain cell, or even just who canvasses for Labour, knows this is an issue for Labour. There are right-wing Labour councillors who, who message me, who say this is a really big issue on the doors. Is it going to stop Keir Starmer becoming Prime Minister? No. Will it cost them, you know, lots and lots and lots of seats? Probably not, right? Um, I mean, maybe, but probably not. There's no indication of that. But is it going to cost potentially hundreds of councillors? Yes. Is it going to maybe determine whether or not Labour controls various councils? Yes. Is it going to stop certain people from winning seats when they would have won seats? Absolutely. Is it going to bring down majorities of, of MPs who therefore will lose their seat next time? Yes. You know, and, and those are meant to be the kinds of considerations that Campbell is sort of focused on monomaniacally. That's all he cares about. I'm a winner. I love to win. Well, if you love to win, what, why defend this? That's not to say that Keir Starmer needs to sort of go on the Palestine Solidarity Campaign march through London every Saturday, or come on Navarra Media and wear a kefir with me and Michael Walker. I'm not suggesting that. Uh, but obviously there's a problem for the party on this issue, much of it, by the way, self-inflicted, and from an electoral standpoint, it makes no sense. And the only reason why I can make sense of any of it is because for people like Keir Starmer, for people like Alistair Campbell, any issue which is... Um, left-coded, any issue, it, there's no electoral downside for them to sort of bulldozing through it, okay? No, we hate public ownership. No, we don't like trade unions. No, we don't care about the left-wing uh, policy position on X, Y, Z. Um, no, actually, publicly owned NHS isn't all that. There's a role of the private sector. No, actually, Palestine is bad. You know, th they think there's no electoral downside here. But as we'll see in a story in a moment, Look, the numbers on, on Gaza right now are absolutely jaw-dropping. There's a reason why the ICJ made the verdict that it did. And I think as anybody, even on the centre-right, you have to have a more humane position on that than, than Keir Starmer does right now, uh, least of all being a quote-unquote progressive. Of course, I don't think Mr. Starmer is a progressive. That's just my view. I'm sure some of you disagree with that. But on this issue, it just makes no sense at all. It makes no sense. Quick break now. We've got another story for you coming up, so stay tuned for that. We'll be looking at how commentary on Gaza is going in the right-wing media. It's not good. That's after this. The point of the media is to get to the facts. It's to get to the truth. That's the point. 
If you want me to start critiquing the British press, I'm happy to. Our press corps is a joke. Why are left-wing politicians held to a completely different standard? The story in the media is already written. There is no meritocracy in media. And to be honest, in my opinion, I look at economic analysis in the media, that is not analysis. That is an entertainment product. You know, we've got this huge media machine which works against any kind of politics of hope. They are still quite concerned, I think, about the spectre of a socialist left which may have access to the public at large. Very many millions of people want a society in which people can live in dignity, the climate is protected, and there's very little political voice for that. Our entire like political and media establishment is glued together by like whatever torturous shit these people have done to each other in like Oxbridge. They don't like Navarra media. We're still there and there's still the embryo of a successful left populist project. If you are not taking these guys and rewarding them for being right and punishing them for being wrong, then they are not analyzing their fucking dancing. Crazy. We've been doing this for, for 10 years. Our mission has never been more relevant. Uh, because legacy media in this country has never been more dysfunctional and our political class has never been more unable to address basic problems, housing, wages, public services, basic problems. Um, so if you can support our work, please go to nirami.com forward slash support. The link is in the description below. Next story. Talk TV has had mixed coverage of the war in Gaza. Piers Morgan has hosted some of the best conversations around, though he doesn't always cover himself in glory. But some people on the station have been consistently ridiculous. One of them is James Whale. On Sunday, he was joined by a former trade union official, Steve Headley, to discuss the situation. Are you completely stupid, Steve? Are you completely nuts? I mean, you come in here dressed in a a scarf with a... It's a Palestinian scarf. Do you actually really support the Palestinians? Absolutely. You think that's a really... What about Hamas? What about Hamas? I defend the Palestinians, right? They defend themselves. Do you say Hamas, it was a resistance? Sorry. I I believe the Israeli government are a fascist government. I believe the Israeli government are a terrorist government. It's a democratic government, though, isn't it? It's a democracy. Oh, so that's the case. No, I'm not having this. This is this is not on. You want to talk rubbish? Go and talk to the BBC or some other. What do you think about the Hamas? What about about free speech? Was Hamas a legitimate legitimate action? You're saying it, but I don't need to listen to you. What I'm saying to you is that I condemn terrorism, whether it comes from Hamas or from the Israeli government. You agree that Hamas comes from the Israeli government? Of course, of course, it has. Well, not us defending themselves. No, because it's an occupied people. Well, it is now. It wasn't in 2005. It can't be self-defense. They're not occupied. It wasn't in 2005. They've been occupied since 1947 when they drove the Palestinians out. You need to look at your history books. 2005, they all left. 1947 is when the Nakba happened. I've never known people in my life. Now, quiet. I don't want you in here anymore, Steve, because you are supporting the enemies of this country. So you're throwing me out, James, because you, you, the defender of free speech, are throwing me out. You've had free speech, but I don't have to allow you to carry on. You, the defender of free speech, are throwing me out. I am defending the freedom of this country. This is not on. It's not on. I won't accept this. You disagree with me. This is not on. By the way, those, those people are being paid. James Well is paid to do that. <laughs> Could you believe it? Fair play in a way. Uh, apparently, Mr. Well is defending the freedom of this country. Well, if he is, then we're more screwed than I thought. And apparently, Palestine isn't occupied. Mr. Whale, they have no airports. They have no control over their border. Israel doesn't even recognize these as international borders. That's the problem. 
There is no sovereign Palestinian state. So of course it's occupied. What else could it be? And how is it protecting Britain by supporting Israel? I must have missed that memo. After all, at a recent settler conference in Jerusalem, attended by a third of the Israeli cabinet, a leading speaker said that the 2.5 million residents of Gaza could go to, guess where? England and Scotland. Her words. Lots of people on the right, particularly in the media, cheer those same people on, but then they whinge when the refugees come to Europe. It's almost like they're not very clever. Anyway, back to the video. If we're at war, as we soon are going to be, you won't be at war with the Palestinian children who you're murdering in their Do you support the 7 7 bombers? I did that for the Palestinians. Well, why not? I did that for the Palestinians. Do you support the Borough Market stabbings? Do you support 30,000 dead people, civilians? Well, yeah, it's collateral damage. It's a legal war. It's killing women and children. It's the lowest amount of collateral damage ever. Do you support the 7 7 attacks? I mean, where do you begin with these people? By the way, after watching that clip, I recommend maybe doing some Sudoku or a crossword just to try and get some brain cells back. I'm sorry to do that to you. Shouldn't take long, maybe 20 minutes. The 7 7 attacks were 19 years ago, they had nothing to do with what's happening in Palestine in 2024. And the point around the deaths is interesting. Apparently 25,000 people out of 2 million isn't that many. It's 2.5 million, he says 2 million. It's not that many. Really? It's more than 1% of the population in a few months. Let's say a few months from now the death toll is 50,000. That's 2% of the population. Is that still too low? Sorry guys, more children need to die for me to care. Sorry guys, more ICUs need to not work so uh, newborns can die, then I'll care. Maybe when it's 10%, 15%. For context, 2% of the population in the UK is about 1.3 million people. Would these guys consider that a lot? Apparently, apparently not. And apparently saying that all of this is bad, 25,000 people dying is bad, thousands of children dying is bad, women not having painkillers while giving birth while having cesareans is bad. Apparently, if you say this, it's offensive to Jewish people. Why? I think saying that's offensive to Jewish people, by the way. Now, you can disagree if there's genocide in Gaza. I've said before, I think it meets that threshold. But an ICJ court says there are grounds to ask the question. But apparently, that offends you. Really? And next up, the conversation turned to the issue of Zionism. Ash and what you're saying to him is not totally offensive. It's irrelevant anyway, but it's not genocide. It's not about being Jewish, it's about being a Zionist. What is a Zionist? Should the Jews not have a homeland? Should the Jews not have a homeland? Why didn't they have one in Bavaria? It was a genocide, not the Holocaust, not the Palestinians. Was Israel never the homeland? Not in occupied Palestine. I don't want him on the show. That's why they find old Jewish texts from 3,000 years ago. They occupied Palestine. They occupied they Palestine. The Arab, most of them come from they, the Arab they, countries. They, they, they built people, annoying, they ransomed ever since. Most of them were expelled from the Arab countries, they've, they've, most of Israel. No, that's not true. The Arab, the Arab countries, can you be quiet? Yeah, countries, yeah, seriously, can you be quiet? The Arab countries actually, 
uh, gave uh, the Jews refuge when yeah, the Holocaust did, was yeah. happening. Yeah. How about that? They were on the Nazi side. You don't know your history. I don't know yes. what he says. I'm executive producer. Are you, are you arguing that the Nakba took place? Will the United Nations recognized away. that the Nakba took place. You're talking rubbish. You're talking rubbish. You the United rubbish. Nations recognized that the Nakba took place. I'm trying to kick him out. What do you want me to do? Israel is the UN. Is this the UN that we're on the Hamas attack? Is this the UN that are totally bent and corrupt organizations? Do you mean that UN? This is a TV station on a broadcast, right? It's not a YouTube show. If I behave like that, by the way, I'd get a ticking off from Fox, from Gary, from everybody here in Navarra Media. What the hell has happened to Aaron? So unprofessional. This is a TV station regulated by Ofcom. Uh, and that line about the UN being totally bent and corrupt. Evidence, please. And by the way, who is this Ash guy next to James Whale? It's like the Chuckle Brothers minus the professionalism and the laughs. Headley mentions the Nakba there. You're talking rubbish. You're talking rubbish, the Nakba. Translation, we have no idea what you're talking about. The biggest problem in media isn't dealing with people who don't know the facts that happens. These guys don't know that they don't know. They don't want to know the facts. They have no capacity for critical reflection of how they might be wrong. So what precisely are they adding to their audience? Where's the value? Open question. Anyway, let's see how this ends. Hamas didn't exist when, in 1947 when you started occupying their land. Hamas didn't exist. We have Netanyahu making the so same statements about Hamas that he did about the PLO. So very similar. Wrong. Very, very similar. Same thing. Wrong. Terrorists. Oh, really? Same thing. Yeah, yeah. So your state's yeah. a terrorist state, isn't it, Ash? That's what? the reality. No. Britain's a terrorist state. America's a terrorist state. And Israel is a terrorist state. This is the reality of it. Yes, yeah, they are. Yeah. Yes, they are. Well, what, you know, it's not a terrorist state, is it? It's These a terrorist state. Right, no. James, you're trying Al, to assault me, James. You're I'm trying to assault me, James. I'm an old man with cancer. You well, can James, go don't please. Well, do what don't I please. ask and go. I'm not going to go. And you won't be able to remove me, James. So please don't. Why? Are you, what are you going to do? I'm well, I'm making, a sta I'm, a, I'm making a statement Turn here for Palestine. It's a statement of, of rubbish. Talking rubbish. Take this book. And go out and support Palestine. I know you want to hit me. I'm not going to hit you, James. No, you're not. You're not, absolutely not at all. Right. Not at all. Not. Not no, you're quite Hamas with Israel. You're a silly you little man. Well, you're a silly little man. As much as a genocide like. enabler. A genocide enabler, James. Yeah, you talk crap. Gen you're that's a all genocide you can enabler. All you can spout is that crap, isn't it? Genocide well, enabler. From the river to the thing. Well, you can certainly see why their ratings aren't the best over at Talk TV. And why invite the guy on if you don't like what he's got to say, to the point he's escorted off air. Mike, uh, besides the politics of what's being discussed, this thing looked ridiculous, amateurish. Some people might be saying, well, why share it then? Why talk about it? It matters because actually this is a, a media product owned by Rupert Murdoch, and that's probably the most influential person in British public life and politics over the last 40, 50 years. Absolutely. We know how influential kind of Murdoch has been in recent years, and this is one of his products. I, I found so much, there's so much to unpick there, Aaron, honestly. It's unbelievable, the behaviour. The, the line at the end where he says, I know you want to hit me as well, just, just baffling. I think this does speak to the liberal consensus on Palestine, right, and on, on, on Israel. So when it comes to Israel, right, you must critique Israel according to the liberal consensus we have the caveat of, you know, Israel has the right to defend itself, you know. So every, every, there must be that caveat. Or you must use the most evasive and passive language possible. That's what most of these kind of liberal commentaries want, right? To be fair, that's not really liberal commentary. Anyway. That's like kind of right-wing commentary. But you get my point. So I think that's what people want on Israel, right? 
And what's funny is Talk TV have had some of the most kind of right-wing thinkers go on there and talk about pro-Palestinian protesters in the most emphatic and apocalyptic terms possible. You know, the idea that these people are enemies of the country and they need, we need to defend the country against these people. Whenever I've gone to the protests, I'm seeing kind of this really lovely coalition of people, whether it's environmentalists or you know, lecturers or just teachers, ordinary people, you know, people from the Labour Party, people from the Green Party, people from all walks of life. Christians, Muslims, Jews are attending these protests because they care deeply what's happening in Gaza. Yet on talk TV, you can have a guy go on there and say, these are enemies to the, to the nation. We must defend the nation against them. Talking almost in terms of unit power, the idea these people have come to our country and are now raising this Islamist views that needs to be tackled. So I think that's the bigger issue here. That's why this story is important, right? Because we need to push back against the idea that the pro-Palestine movement is evil and any critique of, it, of Israel is also evil. These two things aren't true. Israel can be criticised and also the pro-Palestine movement is not just evil Islamist movement is trying to take over Britain, raising genuine concerns for those in Gaza. I think on a talk TV point of view, it's just amateurish. It's absolutely amateurish. And I think the biggest problem for me is, you know you're having a left-wing guy come onto your show the conversation might eventually end up on the issue of Gaza. You generally know what a left-wing person is going to say on Gaza. If that offends you, why bring that person on in the first place? It's genuinely bizarre. And I think what's funny is the kind of right pretend to be these free speech defenders. We defend free speech against the woke left and the wokies. But yet when someone says anything vaguely <laughs> against their kind of stance or, or standpoints, a person must be ushered out of the studio in this kind of ridiculous manner. So I think they haven't covered themselves in glory, but I think the bigger picture here for us is the kind of liberal consensus, the kind of general consensus on how we can and can't talk about Israel. And it's something we need to push back against quite firmly, I think. There's two things I want to say in response to that. The first is, I think you're absolutely right, the reason why the right-wing press has really had a default setting of just anger, vitriol, stupidity often, but it's emotions over facts, right? It's because they don't have the facts. On this issue, they do not have the facts on their side. Now, I'm not saying Steve Headley was bringing facts, you know, Barnaby Rain style, but they couldn't have a sensible conversation based upon historical fact. He talks about uh, the foundation of the State of Israel. He talks about the Nakba. They literally don't know what he's talking about, so they need to talk about things like 7-7, why are you siding with the enemies of this country? Palestine's not done anything to this country. By the way, um, the Haganah, prior to the formation of the State of Israel's Zionist terrorist group, they were responsible for bombing the King, King David Hotel um, in the 1940s. I think over 20 U UK nationals died. They hanged, they hanged, two, two British service personnel who were cons conscripts um, around the same time. This was far-right Zionist terrorists. Um, so you say, well, do you condemn terrorism? Of course. Do you condemn the Zionist terrorism, which, by the way, was being acted on, led by some of the people like Menachem and Begin, who became literally the most senior politicians in Israeli public life? Do you condemn them? But they don't even know this stuff. They don't know any of it. They're completely ignorant. Now, that's why we're here at Navarra Media. We're here to talk about the facts, talk about context, talk in, in a serious turn about serious issues. But I think this is really, really key. The reason why they chucked him out, in, in, in short, is because they can't have that conversation. They're unable to have that conversation. And then secondly, you know, look, on the left, we like to talk about, you know, the big bad wolf of the, of the right. They've got the billionaires on their side. They're incredibly powerful. But look, guys, this is a shambles. 
these people are a joke. Not all of them, many of them. Uh, and the idea that the left can't build a counterpoint to something as ridiculous as James Whale and Talk TV, I, 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 I kind of find hard to believe. Um, it's going to take a long time, but we'll get there. And like I say, it's that little bit easier when you have the facts on your side. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining me this evening. Great show. Always a pleasure to be seen back in action. <laughs> the B team in name, but certainly not the B team in nature. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.